Well, we're going to start 1 Timothy today. I've been waiting for this book for years. It seems that every time I wanted to teach it, somebody else would teach it first, or something would come up more pressing, and so this is one of my favorite books. And uh, there is some great stuff we have coming for us down the pike, and I would encourage you to read through this book, and um, also 2 Timothy and Titus, they have similar themes, and uh, just kind of, uh, you know, get some questions built up and uh, think about things, because we're going to really encounter some great stuff as we go through this book. There's probably nothing greater in the Christian ministry than leading somebody to the Lord. You know, it's not that we save people, we are just kind of uh, in tools in God's hands, instruments that he uses to tell people about Jesus. And uh, even this week I had somebody come into my office and to uh, just have them there and they didn't even know why they were there really. Um, They just came. I needed to talk. And uh, I think, I think I know why you're here. And uh, just after talking with them and praying with them and see them open their heart to the Lord, it's just, it's good. It's good. It kind of erases all the bad things that could be going on during the week just to see somebody come to faith in Christ. And this is kind of how the book is that we are going to be looking at. It's about addressed to a man named Timothy. And Timothy was one of Paul's converts. You know, we oftentimes lead somebody to the Lord, and, and we hope they're saved, Um, But, you know, we don't really have any way of knowing until we see God begin to work in their life. Many people have made professions of faith in Christ. They have uh, said, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but then have fallen away, have gone apostate. The worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches have choked the word out, so it has become unfruitful. They have been, uh, you know, deluded and deceived. Uh, when persecution arises, they see it coming and, nah, I've had enough of Christianity, and they fall away because they don't want to suffer for the name of Christ or suffer anything for being a Christian, and so they walk away. But that true convert, that one who does actually place their faith in Christ, they begin to grow. And sometimes it's by very small degrees, and other times it's just a a rocket ride, but they grow. And you begin to see them change from one glory to the next, and to be transformed into a godly man or a godly woman. And this is kind of how Timothy was to the Apostle Paul. Paul, on one of his missionary journeys, was traveling through a town named Lystra, and it seems led Timothy to the Lord. And Timothy was his true child in the faith. Paul was birthing many spiritual children, so to speak, in the early days of the church. He was traveling all around the Mediterranean basin. He was preaching the gospel, and thousands were coming to the Lord. I mean, could you imagine how exciting that is and what a burden that would be? I mean, could you imagine writing to, you know, Titus, who is at Crete, and say, appoint elders? It's like, well, everybody here is a brand new believer. 
I mean, could you imagine? I mean, you're one of the only people who knows anything about Jesus and Christianity. And thousands of people are coming to the Lord. I mean, what do you do? You start writing divine letters. Say, copy these and spread them around. That would be a great burden. There's nothing worse than having a hungry believer and not being able to feed them. But here Paul was traveling from place to place and he just had to leave it into God's hands to take care of these people. The New Testament, there are three books that are written to three or two of Paul's converts, Timothy and Titus. They are called the pastoral epistles. And they're called the pastoral epistles because they are all three written to pastors, pastoring churches. Pastoring churches in that first century when there wasn't a lot of information when people were coming to the Lord, when Satan was doing everything he could to attack the church and, and distill um, and uh, erode um, just the foundations of what God had called the church to be and wanted it to believe the true doctrine that Jesus had taught and passed on to his apostles. And here Paul was... This man that God had incredibly blessed, wandering around seemingly the whole entire Mediterranean basin from town to town, taking ship voyages from here to there, witnessing to people. And in his travels, Timothy and Titus were two converts he had made. And he writes to them these pastoral epistles to remind them of what they're supposed to be doing in the church. You know, it's one thing to be traveling from city to city and preaching the gospel and seeing people come to the Lord and being there a week or two weeks or maybe a month or two and then moving on. It's another thing to stop, to be with one group of people in one place year after year, pastoring and shepherding one flock. And that's where Timothy is at. And that is why Paul, who cannot come to Timothy at this time, writes him this letter. The theme of 1 Timothy is probably best summed up by the theme verse of chapter 3, verse 15. If you look there, you'll see Paul says to Timothy, but in case I am delayed, Paul wanted to come to Timothy, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. In that one verse, Paul tells us his purpose in writing to Timothy. He wrote that, they might know how one ought to conduct themselves in the household of God. And he describes the church here as the household of God, the church of the living God, and a pillar and support of the truth. That is what the church is. That is the definition of the church. And so we know from this letter, it's not so much theological as it is practical. Sure, he will engage certain theological topics. Sure, he will talk about different doctrines. But primarily, this is a how-to book, as well as the other pastoral epistles. This is a methodology book, a strategy book, a book that lays down the, the techniques or the priorities and the direction the church is to maintain and go so that it will prosper and receive God's blessing. The outline of the book is as follows. In chapter 1, he will address 
false teachers and doctrine within the church. In chapters 2 and 3, he addresses public worship and the qualifications for elders. In chapter 4, he addresses false teachers in the church again. In chapter 5, he addresses church discipline and instructions concerning widows and elders. And then in chapter 6, he will address motives and character of a leader. And so today we're just going to look at the introduction. This is kind of the first step off the pier. We're just going to walk off the front porch and just get going. But we're going to find out three things. One, God speaks to you through an apostle. Two, Timothy is a model you can follow. And three, a blessing you should desire. Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. First, let's look at God speaks to you through an apostle. Notice Paul starts out, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. This is kind of a common thing. If you want to know if Paul wrote a book, you just get to the first chapter and read, and you'll find this in every one of his 13 letters. He always did this. Paul, an apostle. He is Paul, who used to be Saul of Tarsus. Saul, who is described as the foremost of sinners, the Hebrew of Hebrew. Pharisee of Pharisees, the legalistic one who was breathing threats and murder against the disciples, the blasphemer of the church, the one who was the primary instigator in seeing that Stephen, the first martyr of the church, was killed. That's who he is, Paul. It is that stubborn, stiff-necked, flint-foreheaded individual that was traveling down the Damascus Road. In Acts 9, you can turn there. And as he's walking down that road, God intervenes. And in verse 3 of Acts 9, we read this. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Now, what's interesting is Paul didn't know who it was, but he knew it was the Lord. Isn't that interesting? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but get up and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. Saul of Tarsus, struck blind, groping, people leading him away. He could see one minute, now he's blind. And for three days, he couldn't see. Imagine what it it must have been like for Paul. Imagine why God let him wait three days. Instantly, he was converted there on the road. He must have just been destroyed in spirit. 
Here he is attacking Christianity, attacking the church, having people killed, doing everything he can with all of his power, with all of his might, to wipe out Christianity and to to rid the earth of this Jesus myth. And now he finds out it's true. And for three days, he's in total darkness. He doesn't eat, and he doesn't drink, and he thinks about Jesus. And probably all of those thoughts, all of those things he thought were false, that that the Christians were teaching Jesus rising from the dead and being born of a virgin, you know, and all those things, he probably has going through his mind. And he's probably thinking about, that's what the scriptures teach. That's right. The scriptures do say this. They do say that. That's right. And during that whole three-day period, he's just blind and just on his knees before God. And finally, God sends a man named Ananias to give him his sight back. Of course, Ananias is saying, Now, Lord, are you sure? Are you sure this is the guy? I mean, we're talking Saul of Tarsus here? Everybody runs from him. He's killing us. And in Acts 9.15, the Lord says, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. Saul the Pharisee became Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. How incredible. How incredible. And this is encouraging to me. This is encouraging to me because here's Paul, a very educated man. A man who is convinced in his own mind he knows what's right. A man who is doing everything he can to attack Christianity. A man who is running in the wrong direction. And yet God stops him and not only stops him, but turns him around 180 degrees and uses him as one of the most significant individuals in launching Christianity and writing 13 books of the New Testament. And that tells me something, that God is able to use some really messed up people. Praise God. He is able to use people like you And like me, ordinary people to do incredible things. And that's what he did with Paul. The name Saul was the Hebrew name. Paul was the Roman name. He was a Jew and his father was a Jew, but his father was also a Roman citizen. So he had these two names. And from Acts 13 on, once he gets on his journey to go out and and start performing his ministry, he is Paul for the most part. Paul the Gentile apostle. Not Gentile in origin, but in direction. God takes the Hebrew of Hebrews, the Pharisee of Pharisees, to go to the Gentiles. It's just ironic. He takes the guy who you think he would, he would send to the Jews. I mean, this guy is Jew through and through. And he sends that man to the Gentiles. What a statement. What a miracle. And he was an apostle. And this word apostle, when it says Paul, an apostle, means one equipped and sent. But in the New Testament, when 
You see the word apostle, and it says apostle of Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. It's a very significant theological term. An apostle is not merely one equipped and sent, but one equipped and sent with authority. A messenger, an angelos, the word we get angel from, is, you know, an errand boy. One who brings a message and says, hey, so-and-so said this, and uh, big deal. But an apostle of Jesus Christ is one who is sent with the full authority of God himself. In other words, when Paul spoke, when he writes, he writes with the full authority of God. And that's what an apostle is. This word is used of Jesus, who the scriptures say was sent by the Father. That word sent is apostolos. He was sent, and he wasn't just an errand-born boy. He had the full authority of God himself. You see, there's a difference between someone knocking at your door and saying, say, hello, yes, um, I want you to know there's police officers in Burbank. So what? But when somebody bangs on your door and says, open up in the name of the police, and you look through the people and they have guns drawn, there's authority. Say, yes, officer. You see, that's the difference between a messenger and an apostle. The apostle speaks with the authority of God. The messenger just delivers the message. And Paul here is an apostle of Christ Jesus. The word Christ here is the word Greek version of the word Messiah. It means anointed one. And in the Hebrew culture, there were two people who were anointed, priests and kings. Then the Messiah is the anointed priest and king of God. The word Jesus is the equivalent of the Hebrew word Joshua or Yeshua, which means Yahweh is salvation or it means salvation or savior. So Jesus is the anointed Messiah the Christ, the Savior. And he is the one whom Paul is an apostle of. And Paul doesn't want to just stop there. So he says, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus who is our hope. This is very interesting because sometimes you'll hear people say, well, you know... um, Yeah, you know, I know the New Testament says that. And, uh, you know, I think Paul was giving his personal opinion here. You know, Paul was, was, uh, what he was doing here was, uh, you know, he was just telling us what was cultural at his time. I mean, this was something cultural. And so, you know, this was something that Paul preferred because he was a Jew and lived in a Jewish culture. But this is not really binding for us. Um, Paul wasn't really speaking for God. He was just, you know, giving us kind of his preference. That's not what the text says. The text says he is one sent with full authority from Christ Jesus. And he adds, according to the commandment of God. This word commandment is a divine decree, a royal decree. He is according to royal decree, which means that Paul didn't make himself an apostle. I mean, if he had it his way, he'd just be Paul the Pharisee attacking the church. If Paul had it his way, it was God who stopped him on the road. It was God who struck him blind. It was God who turned him around. It was God who sent him. It was God who educated him. 
Do you remember what he says in Galatians? He says, listen. He says, what I'm telling you here, I didn't get from the disciples. I didn't get from the other apostles. I was neither taught it nor learned it from men. Let me tell you where I got my doctrine in theology. It wasn't from a seminary, and it wasn't from Rabbi Gamaliel. I received it by direct revelation of Jesus Christ. That's how Paul received the content of what he wrote about. Direct revelation from God. And so Paul, this apostle called according to the commandment of God, is sent, equipped and sent to be the voice of God to the Gentiles. John Stott, speaking about the pastoral epistle, says, All through these letters, his, that is Paul's, self-conscious apostolic authority is apparent as he issues commands and expects obedience. While Paul's greeting is fairly standard in all of his letters, only in 1 Timothy and Titus does Paul include the phrase, according to the commandment of God. And I ask myself, I wonder why that is. Why is it only in 1 Timothy and Titus does he say that? And you know what? The themes of both of these books are similar. They're both about guarding the truth. And I think Paul knew, and I think God knew as he wrote through Paul, that because these books talk about just the absolute foundation of what the church is to be and do, the methodology of the church and its priorities, that he knew these two books and the doctrines contained in these books would be under attack like no other books. And so what does he do? He tacks this on according to the commandment of God to let them know, listen, I am not Paul, the self-appointed guy. I am according to the commandment of God, which must be obeyed. Think about all those doctrines under a greatest attack in the church today. How many churches right now have redefined the qualifications of an elder? How many churches today have redefined women's roles both in the home and in the church? How many churches have set aside the priority of preaching and teaching? How many churches are promoting tolerance of false doctrine in every view? People, it is epidemic. And these books here, these pastoral epistles, lay down for us what God wants us to do as a church. Not just some churches. Oh, yeah, you're, you're one of those, you know, fanatic Bible-teaching churches, you know, but there are other churches which are doing... No. This is for every church. One of the things I like to do when uh, I'm discipling young men who are going into the ministry, and you could try this sometime, it's pretty fun, get a little pad of paper and uh, read through 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus and write down everything that a leader is to be or do. I guarantee conviction. I guarantee it. It is very convicting. Very convicting. And Paul here says, I am an apostle of Christ Jesus according to the commandment. And then he says, God our Savior. This is an Old Testament term. 
God in the Old Testament is the God of salvation, the God who is the Savior. And even though in the New Testament, many times, about 13, I think, Jesus is described as the Savior, here he says, God our Savior. And then right after that, he adds, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, which is very interesting. Because usually, God is referred to as our hope. But here he connects the Old Testament concept of God our Savior with Jesus who is our hope. The one who saves us from the wrath to come. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 10. Paul says this right after the exercise verse. We're going to get there pretty soon for those who like to exercise. Verse 8 is for you. For it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Now isn't it interesting that in verse 1, Paul says Jesus is our hope. But here in verse 10 of chapter 4, he says God is our hope. Well, which one is it? The answer is both. Because Jesus is God, and because he is, he is our hope, because he is our Savior, as God is our Savior, as Jesus is our Savior. These are the kind of verses that the Jehovah Witnesses have not fixed in their Bible. Don't go to John 1.1. 1, 1. They've they got that one distorted in Hebrews 1.8 and a lot of the common ones. But here he says Jesus is our hope. He is the Messiah, the anointed one who is our hope. In Romans chapter 15, towards the end of the book, when Paul is speaking of salvation, he quotes this prophecy from Isaiah. Listen to it. Romans 15, 12. There shall come from the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. So there is this root of Jesse, which is a messianic term. And the Gentiles will hope in him. He says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God is our hope. Christ is our hope. And we have that hope abounding by the Holy Spirit. In Colossians 1, 25-27, Paul encourages the Gentiles at Colossae with these words, and I like this because he's so excited about what he's going to tell them that he just rattles on and on before he tells them. Listen to this. Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship of God, bestowed on me for your benefit, that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And you're thinking, Paul, just tell us, what's the mystery? Here it is. Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is incredible. That the Gentiles would have the Messiah in them. The very hope of glory itself. And in one verse, in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul has done this. He has said, I am Paul, Gentile name, an apostle to the Gentiles. I am Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles of Christ, the Messiah, anointed one, 
Jesus, who is Savior. I did this not on my own initiative, but according to the commandment of God, because he called me the God who is our Savior. And not only that of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. Literally, you can take out the who is. It's just Christ Jesus, our hope. Our hope. In Titus 2.13, Paul describes the coming of Christ as looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Another explicit command showing Christ's divinity as Christ is our great God and Savior. The application here is quite clear. What we learn from this book is not Paul's opinion. It is not something you can take or leave. It is not something that God wants some churches to believe and other churches can throw it away. I mean, come on. No, this is apostolically commanded truth from God. And we must do what God tells us to do in this book. As we go on, we see the second verse, which begins, To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Timothy is a model for you and I to follow. The name Timothy means one who honors God. is something we all need to do. We know that Timothy had a Greek father and... Uh, a Jewish mother, and a Jewish grandmother. Eunice, who was his mother, taught him the scriptures from an early age. Paul says that Timothy's mother and grandmother had a sincere faith that now dwelt in Timothy. They taught Timothy the scriptures. They taught him the word of God. And so when Paul came along preaching the gospel, that truth he had learned from the Old Testament led him to salvation. In Christ. And it is clear that Paul led Timothy to the Lord. On his first missionary journey, he was going through Lystra. He must have led Timothy to the Lord. And then on the second missionary journey, as he was going through, there was this man there whose name was Timothy. And he led that guy to the Lord. And he was well spoken of. Paul refers to him here as his true child in the faith. And true child really means genuinely begotten, lawfully begotten, not adopted. And he's not talking about physical birth here. What he's talking about is that Timothy was a true convert of Paul. That's why he says in verse 18 of chapter 1, calling him my son. And in 1 Corinthians 4.17, his beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And in 2 Timothy 1-2, my beloved son, Paul loved Timothy. The rabbis had a saying, he who teaches the law to his neighbor's son is considered by the scriptures as if he had begotten him. And so Paul had taught Timothy. I mean, think about it. Think about living with Paul year after year. 
Think about what it would be like traveling the whole Mediterranean basin, getting persecuted and receiving lashes and getting thrown into the, pr- the prisons, to seeing God miraculously deliver you, to see um, miracles wrought through Paul, to see people coming to faith, to see people going apostate, to be able to talk with Paul day after day about why does this happen and how come this and what about the Old Testament, to have this divine source of information walking around with you day after day, man, that would be great. And Timothy was Paul's true child in the faith, son in the faith. There's really no the here in front of faith. It's really child in faith. And when the the is there, the definite article, it means a specific. But when it's not there, it means of the same essence. Timothy had the same essence of Paul's faith. They were kindred spirits. They walked around from place to place. Paul taught Timothy everything he knew, and Timothy studied under Paul, and pretty soon they were just two peas in a pod. They did the same things, and they believed the same things. But you know, all of this was to prepare Timothy. It was to prepare Timothy for the greatest challenge he would ever face, and that is pastoring a church. Paul would leave and he would go to this church at Ephesus and be there, separated from the umbilical cord of Paul in a very hostile environment. And Paul, knowing that Timothy was struggling, knowing that he needed encouragement, he wrote him this letter. And he says, Timothy, my true child in the faith. And he's not just saying the faith that led him to salvation. It's that and everything else. It's all the teachings of Christianity. Do you remember what Jude said in the beginning of his epistle? Right after Jude gives his greeting, right after he you know, says, you know, Jude, and goes and does his greeting like Paul does here, he says this, the first thing out of his mouth is this, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the, fa- the saints. He says, you need to contend earnestly. This word contend means to fight. It means to battle. It means to wrestle. Now, this is a command to all Christians. We are to all contend earnestly for the faith. We are to just, oh, yeah, well, I believe this, and you can believe that, and if by chance we both shall meet, hey, it's beautiful. He's not saying that at all. Turn to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. Here we see where Paul picks up Timothy, his true child in the faith. In Acts 16, it says in verse 1, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. And a disciple was there named Timothy, a son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted this man to go with him. Notice, he was well spoken of. Paul wanted this man to go with him. This is why Paul took Timothy with him. He was well spoken of. He was growing in the Lord. And even though he was very long, probably in his mid-teens or you know, late teens at the most, we know that 15 years later, Paul still describes him as a youth. So, I mean, he was pretty young. And in Acts, we see Timothy accompanying Paul at Berea, at Corinth, at Jerusalem, traveling all over the place. If you looked in different letters of Paul, he mentions him in Romans and 2 Corinthians and Philippians and Colossians and 1 and 2 Thessalonians and Philemon 
And, of course, these two letters here. Timothy was Paul's companion, his child in the faith. And they were tight. And now they were split up. And Timothy was meeker. He was timid. He had some physical problems. He was being attacked. He was starting to capitulate. And he needed some encouragement. So Paul writes in this letter to remind him not of his theology. He knew it was right. Not that Paul was an apostle. He knew that too. But he wanted the church to know he was an apostle. He wanted the church to know he was speaking with divine authority. And he wanted Timothy to be reminded of what he was supposed to do as a priority in the church. And three things we can learn from Timothy, a model, is this. He placed his faith in Christ and had a good reputation in the church. So often people say, oh, yeah, I believe. And, you know, I always think to myself, oh, yeah, the demons believe too. So what? What good is faith, as James says, if it has no works? If you're a believer but it doesn't change you, what is a, a new creature if you aren't new? What is regeneration if you're still unregenerate? Timothy took his faith in Christ seriously and God saved him. And that salvation was evident in his life as it began to change him and transform him. Secondly, Timothy is a model because he learned the same faith as Paul and followed it diligently. That's what you and I need to do. We need to study Paul, to study the scriptures and follow the same faith. And Timothy was wise enough to make Paul somebody he should pour his life into, and somebody he would want to be around. You know, he could have said, when Paul said, hey, you want to go with me? No. He could have said that. And people, this is what discipleship is. It's pouring your life into somebody. It's not just having a Bible study. I mean, that could be part of it. It's pouring your life into somebody. I remember teaching this study. I had these guys in my house, and there was a bunch of us, and, you know, I was teaching them how to to teach Bible studies. And so what I did is I said, okay, every week one of us is going to teach and we'll go around and I'll meet with you separately and help you work through the lesson. Then at, when we get together for Bible study, you can teach the group. And then the next week um, I would help another guy and I'd meet with the first guy who taught and we'd talk over, so how do you think you did and give him some pointers and whatever. And we were kind of doing this. Well, one guy's turn, he has this verse on encouragement and he did something really bad. He said, tonight, after he teaches this verse, what we're going to do is just stop and go around the room. And as we go around the room, um, we're just going to focus on one of us at a time, and all of us are going to say three things encouraging to this person. Say, are you sure? Guys, don't do that. This is not a woman's study. And you can see all the guys are going, whoa, hang on here. I got to go. So this poor guy next to me, they get him first. And we all go around and say all these nice things about him. Man, he just broke down and he just wept like a baby. He just could not handle that much favor from his peers. I mean... He was just so humbled and blown away that people actually saw something good in him. It was incredible. So it's going around the room, and, you know, finally it comes to me. And all the while you're thinking, what are they going to say about me? Think, well, you know, they're probably glad at least I taught them the Bible study, and they're glad. And I remember this one guy 
said, there's only one thing that I want to say to encourage you. And he says, this has changed me more than anything you have ever done. And I'm thinking, I must have been, when, I wonder if it was when I taught on this or when I did this. And he says, it's when you went fly fishing with me. And I'm thinking to myself, what? Paul never went fly fishing. He says, it's when you took me down to the lake and you had your really nice rod and your really nice reel and you said, don't drop this reel because it will break. They're kind of fragile. And I did tell him that. I said, this is how you put it on. And I was showing him how to put it on the reel seat and he dropped it. And it broke in two. And he says, when you said, no big deal, and threw it in your car and gave me another one, that is what impacted me more than anything you ever did. I'm thinking, are you kidding me? Fishing? You see, this is what discipleship is. It's when you're driving down the road and with, you know, your disciple... And somebody cuts you off, and they're watching. It's when you're working on your car, and they're talking to you, and the wrench slips, and you crack your knuckle, and they're watching. It's how you treat your wife when they're watching. My wife and I were just talking about this um, episode. I was teaching, uh, when I was in seminar, I was teaching this marriage study, and every day... Um, when I drive up to the study, we were meet, the church was so packed that, that they couldn't fit anybody else in. And so we were meeting in a pizza parlor before the service. It was tormenting. It smelled great in there. And um, we're, we're in this place. Well, I, I have this thing. I told my wife when we started going together that I will get your door for you. And I said, don't get your door. I will get it for you because I want to do this to serve you. And so I just do it. I mean, it's just a habit that I'm in. So I get out. I get her door. I've been doing this now for 17 plus years. And this is something I do. And this guy was inside the pizza parlor. He'd always get there early and set up. And he'd look and he'd think, oh, yeah, look at Mr. Door. <laughs> and he told his wife, you know, he's showing off. And, um, and he said, and in my mind, I'm thinking, Okay, I'm going to keep watching him. And as soon, as soon as I see him forget, I am going to razz him to no end. So after 14 weeks, he came up to me and said, Okay, I'm opening the door for my wife. (laughs) You see, all the class, he was listening to that, but what he was doing was watching me. He wanted to see me live out what I was teaching him. And that's what being a disciple is and discipling. It's having somebody in your life so they can see you in the kitchen, see you in the garage, see you on the freeway, see you under stress, see you under persecution, see how you respond. And as you respond in a godly way, you teach them, not only by Bible studies and word, but also in deed and truth. And this is the great model of Timothy, that he not only came to faith, but he was willing to go with Paul. Paul was like, shoot me. I am the ultimate target on the face of the earth now that Jesus is dead. Kill me. I mean, he was the one who everybody wanted to persecute, the one that Satan wanted to eliminate. And here Timothy is. Anytime Timothy could have said, Paul, later, you're too painful to be with. 
but he followed him. That's why Timothy is such a great model. Then finally, we get to the end of the greeting where Paul says, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is pretty standard in all of his letters except in First and Second Timothy where Paul adds mercy. All the others, it's grace and peace, but just when he writes Timothy alone, does he add the word mercy? What is grace? What is mercy? What is peace? Let's talk about these and see what a blessing they are. Grace is a divine gift. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. You know, you're, you've got a new car and you're thinking, yeah, I think I'll just test this baby out. So you're driving through your neighborhood at 90 miles an hour. And then there's the police officer who catches you. He pulls you over to the side of the road. He's got his ticket book out and his hand is on his gun. And he walks up to your window and says, do you know how fast you were going? Yes, I was, I was going 90 says, I'm going to have to give you four tickets to the World Series. You just go, what? Why would that be unusual? Because you don't deserve it. He not only doesn't get you what you do deserve, he gives you this incredible gift. Why? You were a blasphemer, a persecutor of God, like Paul says. You were an enemy of God. And you know what God did? God looks down at the human race and he sees us rebelling against him. And so he says, I will become a man. I will live a perfect life since they obviously cannot. I will offer myself up on the cross to die in their place. I will receive their sins upon myself. I will be a curse for them. I will take the sin of the world upon myself and I will die in their stead so that they, through faith, can have the gift of eternal life. The gift, the unearned gift of eternal life. People, this is grace. This is God reaching down to the unworthies, giving us what we don't deserve, even though we were going 90, sinning against God. He stops and sends his son to die on the cross for our sins. Mercy is kind of the opposite of grace. Mercy is not receiving what you do deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not receiving what you do. You see, the scriptures say, grace we have all received in grace upon grace, John 1.16. God gives us all sorts of grace, grace upon grace. In Ephesians it says he lavishes it upon us. He bestows grace upon us according to his riches in Christ Jesus. I mean, we are just smothered with grace. Dump truck grace is what I like to think of it. There's some guy lying in the road, two dump trucks come up and just bury him in grace. That's what we all have. And we are experiencing that grace now through faith and in the future to eternity, God will bless us with what we don't deserve. But mercy is different. Mercy is that by our sins, we have earned for ourselves wrath. You see, think about Eve. Eve is uh, in the garden. And she decides that... uh, She's going to go over to this tree that she's not supposed to eat of, but she hasn't sinned yet. But as soon 
as she listens to the serpent, the moment she conceives a rebellious thought in her heart, God would strike her dead and cast her into the lake of fire and let her burn there in torment forever and ever if it were not for mercy. The moment she would conceive rebellion, that first sinful thought would have plunged her into God's ever-enduring wrath, except for mercy. Mercy, you see, is that which locks up or holds back God's wrath so His grace can save us. That's what mercy is. And when you have received mercy, you have received grace. And when you've received grace, you have received mercy. And when you have grace and mercy, you have peace with God. You know, the Hebrews say as a common greeting, shalom. It just means peace. God's peace be with you. Listen, if you're right with God, you're right. If you're wrong with God, it's bad. If God has his hammer over your head, I don't care how pleasurable it is for that second, it's coming down and it's going to squash you. But mercy and grace are those divine favors of God which we don't earn, which we don't deserve, and he gives them to us and saves us. And so Paul says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord, our King, our Savior. And this is what this book is all about. In the pages to follow, we're going to look at some great stuff from God to us through the Apostle Paul. And uh, I can't wait for those weeks to come. If you don't know Christ, if you've never received God's grace, if you don't know what it means to be a believer after the service today, you can go right through these doors. There's a little prayer room back there. There's some people there who would love to talk with you and share with you and tell you more about what it means to know Christ and to receive his grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you did send your son out of pure grace and mercy to die on the cross for our sins. Not that we deserved it, but because you love us even though we are unlovable. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. And Father, in the weeks and months to come as we study this great book, I just pray that each of us would take these things to heart, that they would be fixed in our minds, and that, Father, lived out in our actions, that you might receive all the glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.